From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. An athlete with hopes of playing college volleyball. That's Jessica Nelson. And her life changed in an instant. Faced with the possibility of losing her leg after a car accident, she turned to Mayo Clinic for help. We'll hear from Jessica and the orthopedic trauma surgeon who helped her get back on the court. Bone has this incredible ability to reform itself. And if you pull bone at exactly the right rate, you can get new bone to form from nothing at all. Also on the program, practice what you preach. We'll hear from one of our news colleagues about how covering health and wellness stories at Mayo Clinic led him to make changes in his own life. And some interesting statistics on stress and demographics. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Jessica Nelson, she's in studio with us today, and she doesn't remember much about the automobile accident that nearly took her life in July of 2014. And after she had surgery in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to stabilize a compound fracture in her lower leg, meaning that the bone was sticking out through Mm, the skin. I didn't need to know that. (laughs) Jessica developed an infection following that, and that infection ate away more than three inches of her bone, her leg bone. And Sioux Falls said, you know, we probably need to amputate your leg, or you've got one other option, and that's a trip to the Mayo Clinic (laughs) for a second opinion. Uh, An avid volleyball player with hopes of playing in college, Jessica came to Mayo and met orthopedic trauma surgeon Dr. Andy Sims. Dr. Sims told Jessica he could save her leg, but competitive sports likely were not going to be a part of her future. Here to share the rest of the story (laughs) are orthopedic surgeon Dr. Andy Sims and patient Jessica Nelson. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Jessica, great to meet you, obviously. And Dr. Sims, nice to see you. Yes. You know, this may be difficult for you, Jessica, but would you would you mind going back and telling us about the accident and what you remember and what you were doing and where you were going and what happened? Yeah, so I was on my way back to town from my grandma's house, and I turned onto a gravel road, and that's the last thing I remember. But yeah. the... Uh, authorities tell me that they believe the right wheel bearing of my car gave out, which forced my car into the ditch, and I hit a field approach, and then my car rolled five to seven times. And I had my seatbelt on, but somehow my legs got outside the driver's window, and so then the car rolled over my legs, crushing them. Tell me that again, your legs? My legs came out from underneath the, the steering wheel and went out the out driver's the window. window. <laughs> and it's so crazy. one leg was fine, but the other leg, um, or were they both injured? Well, they were both injured. My left leg sustained tears in the ligaments and tendons and such, okay. and then lacerations of the leg. And the lacerations on the knee, uh, they needed, I believe it was 18 stitches, and then... On the right leg, you know, the compound fracture, different lacerations. So do you remember, were you uh, alert? Do you remember the bone sticking out of your leg? Well, I don't remember the accident or 10 days after, but when the farmer found me and uh, when the um, ambulance came and the medics were there, they, they said I was alert and awake the entire time. Wow. And so how long was it after you went to the, the hospital in Sioux Falls that they said, it looks like, you know, we might have to amputate that leg. How, how long was that time? I didn't come to Mayo till October, and the accident was in July. Mm. All right, so what happened in the interim? What was the uh, initial uh, treatment? 
the initial treatment was they realigned the tibia bone in my right leg and they put a rod through it to stabilize it until it was going to grow back and then it'd be fine and they estimated time back to sports to be december um but so things then, were looking pretty good. Then. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And okay. I was, I was pumped. You know, right, of course, right away I asked, you know, when am I going to get back to sports? So they said December, and I was like, all right, miss one volleyball season, that's okay. But then progressively, they kept pushing back the date. You know, as it got worse and worse and worse. Uh, what got worse? The my leg wasn't healing, and then the infection formed, and then it, the infection got worse, and then the infection ate away three and a half inches of my leg, and so. Throughout the, that time, I kept asking, you know, what's going to happen with sports? And so eventually, um, I came here, obviously, and then that sports was out of the picture. So did they have to, so they put the rod in. Did they ultimately take the rod out because of the infection? Yeah, so when I came here to Mayo Clinic, um, Andy removed the rod, and when he did so, um, my bone was eaten away by the infection to the point where the bone just fell apart into pieces. And so in the surgery, he picked out the pieces of bone that was infected. Doctors, what, were you, what were you thinking then? Yeah, that's what I was gonna well, say. We knew, we knew this was infected when she came in because there was an open wound still. So the bone was just one part of the picture. The, the uh, soft tissue around the leg, it was something we needed to manage as well. And so before the surgery, we, I could kind of tell based on the x-rays and the scans where the infection was and how what the extent of bone injury was uh, that she'd sustained and uh, so we planned on how much we would remove or have to remove and then we obviously adjusted that as we f what we found based on what we found in the operating room so you had to remove the bone because it was infected yeah. or, or dead it was when? mostly dead yeah. uh, and so a lot of it had been eaten scalloped away you could just see the the destruction of the, of the bone from the infection is this yeah. a common problem for an injury such as this um, it's not uncommon after an open fracture such mm -hmm. as this. It's particularly not uncommon in open fractures that occur in agricultural settings. So, you mm -hmm. know, she was into a field that probably had been fertilized or something a recently. A little manure and, out and, there, uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of bacteria that, that are very, very aggressive that can, uh, that can cause uh, these kind of infections. So if the hospital in Sioux Falls said all that we can offer is an amputation, maybe you should go to Mayo Clinic, what did you have to offer? Well, we, we offer uh, the treatment of, of bone transport, and that's a process that we'll talk about, but it's basically of, uh, a method of uh, regenerating bone to fill defects or large, large gaps by moving bone around in, inside of, of a limb. So how long did it take you to get the infection under control when, so that you could potentially proceed with some sort of, or sort of reconstruction? And did you at some point discuss with her amputation? Um, you know, we discussed that that, that, that that would be an option or a possibility. Um, certainly, we discussed that this is going to be a long, drawn-out process of, of going through the treatment of using a, an external fixator and bone transport. Um, and we discussed that there's likely going to be some form of complication, hopefully minor, that we can manage, but that almost is inevitable with a long process like this. But how long it took us to clear out the infection? Well, when we took her for surgery the first time, we did a very aggressive debridement, and we removed entire segments back to healthy appearing bone. So we were able to do a pretty aggressive debridement right the first time. And when you say debridement? That means removal of tissue, removal of bone. So basically cut the bone and all the infected tissue and just took it out of there. And again, it left her with about close to a three-inch hole where her bone, there's no longer bone. 
three inches of leg bone, that's a big difference. It, it is a good <laughs> amount of bone to, to lose. Uh, additionally, though, her skin and soft tissues over the leg were compromised. When she came in, she had a, a draining wound that came through an open area, an ulcer, basically, that there was pus coming out of that. So what we did when we removed the, the bone was not just, uh, we didn't just leave it that three-inch gap. We actually shortened that gap to about two inches, shortening her whole leg. And so by shortening the whole leg, we, we could actually get the skin and soft tissues closed okay. primarily. That's troubling, though, for an athlete to say we're going to shorten your leg by two inches. <laughs> well, we're not, we That's just part of the process. We're not going to leave it there. We're okay. not going to leave we're it there. We're not done yet. Oh, we're not very done good. yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're learning about Jessica Nelson's uh, story and the trauma that she had from an automobile accident initially treated in Sioux Falls and then ultimately came to the Mayo Clinic to see Dr. Andy Sims. And when we come back, we'll hear more about the operation and what Jessica's doing now. Time for a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. And we are with Jessica Nelson talking about her leg injury and the surgeon who treated her, Dr. Andy Sims. So before we took our break, Jessica, you were in the hospital at Mayo. Dr. Sims had removed the dead infected tissue from your leg. Then I presume you were on intravenous antibiotics for a period of, of time to make sure the infection was under control. With a leg that was two inches shorter than <laughs> the other one. a leg that's two inches shorter. We're, we're going to fix that. We'll get to that. <laughs> so then what happened next, Dr. Sims? Well, at the time that we removed the bone, we had to put in something to stabilize her bone. We removed the rod at the same time. Um, so there was nothing, to, you know, with a large segment of bone missing, nothing to stabilize it. So we placed what's called an external fixator. It's a... Uh, it's comprised of a couple rings that are attached to the bone through pins that go through the skin. And then the rings are attached to each other with these connectors that, that we can change the length of them. And we can actually manipulate and move the rings around. So once we remove the dead bone, we put a set of these rings on her bone. And I also, through a small incision, cut her bone in a different area to make a, a central piece of bone that we could actually slowly draw into the defect and and draw it to, f to fill that defect. Mm. So instead of having one gaping piece of bone missing, you kind of had two that could stretch out? We, we took one and we cut the bone up by the, below the knee and we slowly drew the, piece, the central piece of bone down into the defect. <laughs> and, and as the bone is pulled, bone has this incredible ability to reform itself mm -hmm. called regenerate bone. It regenerates itself. Mm -hmm. And if you pull bone at exactly the right rate of about a millimeter a day, you can get new bone to form from nothing at all. Okay, so <laughs> Jessica, this yes. uh, I have been wincing and cringing almost entire interview here. So how painful is what he's describing? Um, the pain that I felt when turning the struts, moving the bone, ripping the pins through was... <laughs> so this is a millimeter every day. You had this done every day. Yeah, it was for over 100 days. Um, that's 100 millimeters. Mm -hmm. I could, I'm good e. at math. <laughs> <laughs> Orthopedic surgeons. The, um, that was the most excruciating pain that I have ever felt and I think more than likely will ever feel again. I, It's indescribable, mm -hmm. the pain that I felt. Um, 
And you probably had some pain medication on board, right? I um, mean, yes, a hundred um, days. I mean, worth. Dr. Sims is a really nice guy. <laughs> yes, of course he is. Yeah, <laughs> so I had um, narcotics uh, prescribed to me throughout the process, um, and I, I, I did take them after surgeries and such. But um, uh, after a while, your body gets used to the drug, and it doesn't work as well. And you have to either higher the dosage or change the drug. And mm-hmm. and I wasn't gonna mess around with that and plus narcotics are addictive and I wasn't gonna mess around with that either so I essentially just took it after surgeries and that was about it you're tough she is are you a farm girl there's got to be there's got to be a farm girl. well yeah my family my uh <laughs> there's a family it. farm yeah <laughs> I we don't it. live on it but we have a family farm yeah okay so uh, and when that was lengthened each day was it the entire day was just pain filled or was it that time span around the lengthening each day? Um, essentially pain never went away due to the pins being screwed through the bone, you know, through the skin and everything. And so with every movement you felt it. And so, but then we had to turn three times a day in the morning at noon and at night um, because you had to gradually move it down. You couldn't just do it all at once. So a third of a millimeter, three times a day. Um, sort of. If you right? look at yeah. the device, you have six struts around the, the rings, right? Uh-huh. We moved the front two in the morning, uh, okay. this, the other you know, two at a time, on the top and bottom. I was in pain anyways, and then when we'd turn those rings, it was just like you literally could feel it ripping. It was very, oh. very small, but you felt it. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes at some point it was so hard to turn that my dad would have to use a wrench in order to get oh you were doing this at home you're out of the turn. hospital i mean yeah i we had farmers Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so i stayed Rip in the, the hospital yeah. i stayed in the hospital a week after the first surgery um and then you know several surgeries throughout but otherwise yeah i was at home um coming back for appointments it was every couple weeks and then it was three weeks and it was every six weeks but otherwise yeah i was at home Dr. Sims, is this usually used for accident patients, or I would imagine there might be some other applications? Yeah, we use this instrument for recreating or restoring bone defects, which often will occur from trauma. They could occur from other sources, um, tumors that have been removed. They can occur from, we use this to lengthen people's limbs for congenital defects where their leg is short. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there are a lot of... Uh, a lot of, But a majority in my practice are, are, are trauma-related, although we do see a good amount of... Uh, other causes so you sent jessica home with the wrench and then her (laughs) dad three times a day it must ruin your whole day it's not like you just have it in the morning and you got something to look forward to so three times a day then your dad would turn the crank turn the the nut and and lengthen your leg yeah essentially um i utilized whoever was around me in the morning obviously my dad or my mom would take care of it but i (laughs) Throughout this process, I still went to school. And so where were you in school? It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year. When I was turning the struts, I was a junior, and I have a brother who is a senior at that time. And so at lunch, my brother would come and help at school. Me turn. At school, this is insane. He would, he would the help wrench me turn. With you to yep. oh yes, gosh. I did. It was in my backpack. Okay, then, so <laughs> the the fact though that you made it through that, and when you came in here today, you have been you're back to playing volleyball. So the whole thing worked. Yes, 
It was the most miraculous thing. Throughout the process, Dr. Sims never brought up the fact that I'd, oh, your leg is doing so well. You're going to get back to playing. You know, he never brought that up until <laughs> one of the last appointments. I came back. He, We took x-rays like normal, just check in on it. And he said that your leg healed so well. You know, it the process did what exactly what it was supposed to. And the bone was strong enough that he felt I could go back to playing sports. That must have been a good day for you, Dr. Sims. It was a great day. You know, the patient's outcomes are so affected by the patients, their attitudes and their perspectives and what their goals are. And we, I want to keep the goals realistic. So I don't want someone thinking that they're going to be, you know, they're back exactly where they were. But our goal is to get her back to doing a lot of the activities she loved. And Jessica's goals were to get back to playing volleyball. And, you know, she worked so hard and went through so much to get that. It's very satisfying to see her achieve that. So You've got to be really pleased. I'm very pleased. Because they don't pleased. all turn out this well. You know, no. They're, I mean, these, these are complicated cases. And sometimes we don't end up on the side that involves keeping the limb. And um, in that case, um, you know, it's, it's, it's disappointing, but that's the outcome periodically. And that's when she would have come to see you. Well, <laughs> you're the amputation I'm the kind of guy. I'm the last person you yeah. want to see. That's right. So, Jessica, what are you doing now? Uh, what's happened since this time? Everything's healed up, or what are you doing? I'm attending RCTC here in Rochester. I'm taking prerequisites um, to go into becoming a child life specialist here at Mayo, hopefully. <laughs> and then Dr. Sims will help you get a job. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure of it. And then um, I also had the pleasure of being on the volleyball team this last fall. At RCTC. At RCTC, awesome. yes. Oh, yeah, now that's good. That's big-time volleyball. <laughs> um, they were national champions their 2015 season. So um, how has this whole thing changed you? It has given me so much perspective on life, and it has given me um, a new sense of who I am in that before my car accident, sports was first in my life, and then I was told I could never play again. And so I had to refine who I am. And so it's been the most amazing year, and it has given me a new perspective in that when you go through something hard, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because you can grow as a person going through it. All right, the Jessica Literally, Nelson story. you can grow your leg <laughs> going through a bad yeah. thing. <laughs> the Jessica Nelson, Dr. Andy Sims, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, Jessica, the story of how Dr. Sims saved your leg, lengthened it, and you're back on the volleyball court. <laughs> Fabulous. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, practice what you preach. How covering health and medical news helped one reporter make healthier lifestyle choices. And later on the program, we'll hear interesting research on stress and demographics. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Just like the banker who invests a little every month and ends up wealthy, investing in four positive health habits today can help make your future healthy. The one is don't smoke. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says not smoking is a biggie. Two is eating five fruits or vegetables a day. Three is maintain a healthy weight. Your body mass index, or BMI, should be under 25. And four is exercise. For every hour you're active vigorously as an adult, you live two hours longer. There's nothing else we have really in medicine that that good of a return on an investment. 
Dr. Kopetsky says if you start investing today, you reduce your risk of heart attack in four years by 40 percent. And if you continue your health investments for two decades, that risk drops by 80 percent. And in other news, let's talk about your eyesight. Some of you might know what it's like to have to reach your arm way out to get small print into focus. It's called presbyopia, and it happens to many people as they age. Now, in presbyopia, your eyes gradually lose the ability to adjust to see objects clearly at different distances. The most common symptom is blurry close-up vision. You may also experience blurred distance vision when changing your focus to near to far objects. Now, if this happens to you, after prolonged close-up work, such as working at a computer, try resting your eyes every 10 to 20 minutes by closing them for several seconds. This may help. If you don't normally wear prescription glasses, try a pair of non-prescription reading glasses that can be used for close-up work. If you're concerned about these vision changes, make an appointment with your eye doctor. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, when it comes to making healthy lifestyle choices, Jeff Olson has always tried to do the right thing. But sometimes life got in the way, as with most of us. Now, Jeff is a husband and a father of four, working two jobs. And for him, it was easy to let his busy lifestyle get in the way of his own well-being. But after taking a job as a reporter for the Mayo Clinic Minute, Jeff found helpful tips and inspiration from the physicians that he interviewed. Those interviews led Jeff to make small changes, which have ultimately made a big difference. Here to share his story is our Mayo Clinic News Network colleague, Jeff Olson. Welcome to the program, Jeff. It is great to be here. Thank you. It's nice to see you. You know what's encouraging about this whole thing is that Mayo Clinic puts out a lot of information, but it's good to know that someone actually takes it to heart and acts on it. <laughs> the guy who's putting out the information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's fabulous. great. Yeah, in little bite-sized pieces, we really make these one minute, these Mayo Clinic minutes, and we cover all the bases. And for me, after a while, I started to catch it on the whisper and <laughs> do these things. You paid attention. Yeah, and it added up to 15 pounds this year. 15 wow. pounds total? Yeah. In one year. That's impressive. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, some of those choices. You have listed four of them. We'll probably figure out some more before we're done here. First of all, did you listen to anything that Dr. Shives has said? Oh, uh, let's see. <laughs> you haven't interviewed him all yet. Your stuff. The right <laughs> answer is everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, who did you talk to that helped? Well, let me say, it is such a privilege to talk to the doctors and the staff here. They're so smart and gracious with their time. And we, like I said, we cover all the bases. A lot of it has to do with your diet. And really, one of the the best pieces of advice I could offer you is get the new edition of the Mayo Clinic Diet. I just did a story on edition number two that's okay. here just in time for resolution season. <laughs> and uh, if you want to take off some weight and then learn to live a healthier life, that's your book because there are the two phases of the diet. L okay. Lose it and live it. Uh, and within that, a, a hundred, probably a thousand different stories. And one that pops to mind that we did last year at this time was with dietitian Kate Zeratsky. Okay. Uh, and she we said, know Kate. She yeah. said, do the sugar challenge. Just for two weeks, try to eliminate sugar and artificial sweeteners from your diet. Two weeks. Yeah. And, and you lived through it. I did. And, <laughs> and you know what it does is you, you get less sugar, but you also realize where it is in your diet. Mm. And you think, you know what? I can have a cup of coffee with skim milk without mm -hmm. having something stirred in there, sure. that shot of whatever, or the mm -hmm. whipped cream on top of it. 
Uh, and uh, it also resets your palate, too. Natural sweetness is there in fruits and vegetables. So I thought that was fantastic. Okay, so you did that for two weeks, and then have you continued? Uh, or have you just then limited the amount of sugar that you eat? Yeah, take it out where you can live without it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have sugar, um, not as much as I had last year at this time, because I think one of the threads that runs through all of these stories is mindfulness. Sure. And when you do that sugar challenge, you become mindful of, oh, there's some sugar. One thing I do is I read labels now. Mm. Uh, Kate says, read the label. Sugar has five letters. So try to eliminate sugar (laughs) in the first five ingredients on Uh the label. We had what we thought was a cool trail mix bar for our family. Mm -hmm. Darn thing had evaporated cane sugar as the second ingredient. Ah, So there's a different option out there with sugar being further down the list, maybe not there at all. You said mindfulness, which of course makes everyone, I would imagine, think of Dr. Sood. (laughs) What did you learn from Dr. Sood? I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Do it right now. Get out your phone. Go to Twitter and follow at Amit Sood MD. And it is about mindfulness. Um, It is about being where your feet are and being kind to yourself. He's been doing a tweet a day for a Mm -hmm. whole year. Mm -hmm. One of the tweets that comes to mind is, look at yourself through the eyes of your pet. Think about your dog when you come home. They're excited to see you, and they're they're happy you're Just there. Just like your spouse, right? <laughs> sure, absolutely. Uh, or he says, we wear a lot of hats during the day. You're a broadcaster, mm-hmm. you're a mom, mm-hmm. you're a sister. Figure out which one that you were best at today. Hang your hat there. Instead of what we tend to do, which is, I had a bad day at work. Right, I, find, I'm make a, the list of bad. Yeah, I'm a bad reporter today. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of thinking, well, I was a great dad today. So that word mindfulness, explain, how how do you interpret that? For me, there's a monologue that can get chugging in my brain, and it tends to be a negative monologue. And when you become mindful, first of all, you just kind of stop. You kind of pull a halt to everything and, uh, and, and be where you are. Maybe count the blessings right in front of you that you would tend to overlook. On a day like today, we're taping on a day when it probably won't reach zero here in Rochester. <laughs> it's so cold. I'm thankful. Oh, no, no, it's nice out. It is nice. You took the words out of my mouth. I'm thankful for the sunshine. Right. That does make it easier. If it was this temperature and cloudy, it wouldn't be as fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so it's. I think it's just recognizing the good. And then going back to that idea that... Um, you are trying and you are succeeding. Look for the successes and build on those rather than r- recount the failures. All right. You said, uh, again, to reiterate, you have lost 15 pounds mm-hmm. through these things that you've done. And the very first thing that you had on your list, we skipped right over, and that's from Dr. Karen Grothy, who has also been on this program. Mm-hmm. Sure, we know them all. Food diaries. <laughs> so important. And you actually did a food diary. Yes. And again, I'm not still doing a food diary. Some people will find that they're going to want to do it for the rest of their lives. I did it for a couple of weeks. And doctor said do it and again it's uncovering things that are happening that you're not aware of and for me it was uh, two things number one is snacking and late night calories so we have a fairly healthy cupboard of snacks it's nuts it's trail bars as I mentioned but I went to those nuts a lot more than I thought (laughs) you know a handful here a handful there and over the course of a day if you have four handfuls that's a whole cup of nuts that's too much for me And uh, I also noticed that I tend to, if I'm going to have too many calories, if I'm going to fall off the bandwagon, it's while I'm in my pajamas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Toward the end of the day. (laughs) So if I'm just aware of the snack cupboard, when I open it, I think, okay, Jeff, you're eating something now. You're going to remember this. Or at night, I just don't go there. And so if you do that for a couple of weeks, you're going to find the same trends or different trends, but you're going to be able to identify your pitfalls. 
And um, that started me on this path to, you know, for me, it was just shaving a little bit here and there. We did another story, another Mayo Clinic Minute with Kate Zeratsky, and she said, just go through your regular life, but take a little off of everything. And um, for me in the morning, that was one tablespoon of peanut butter instead of two. Or when I make eggs and toast, I just automatically put two eggs in the pan. Well, guess what? Two pieces of toast. Your old, your old friend Jeff can get by with one egg and one piece of toast. So You're it's, not a it's, farmer. You don't need to have that big farm breakfast. Cutting in half the calories and still having eggs and toast, which I enjoy. All right. To uh, finish up, let's talk about the uh, standing desk. Moving around from Dr. Levine. Yeah. Boy, is he awesome. <laughs> and you have a working, you have a standing desk now? I do. I, I have a desk that I made. And I should say this, if you're going to do it yourself, make sure that you're ergonomically correct. I see a lot of people who, who make a standing desk, but then they're way away from their, their screen high, or their microphone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you can buy one and, and that's the best case scenario, but if you're going to make one, uh, get on to the Mayo Clinic News Network and mm-hmm. see our story. But yeah, all of a sudden, that afternoon lull, that was gone because I was standing and it burns a little bit of extra Uh, a few extra calories not a lot but it gets you moving around and um, I just find that at the end of the day I have more energy and I feel better Uh, you know if I end up sitting for eight straight hours now I get squirrely and then I I get sore too so you've really changed haven't you so tell us how you were lucky to end up at the at the Mayo Clinic what'd you do before Uh, well I've been a reporter I've been on television and radio my whole life. We don't have time for this whole story. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, I've anchored newscasts. I've done uh, long-form news reports. And um, some of my colleagues who I'd worked with before ended up here and had great things to say. So when a job came open, I jumped at the chance to tell these stories. I love that whatever I'm telling, that story is going to help someone. It's, it's important information. And it wow. ended up helping you. 15 pounds lighter. Yeah, you know, it's great to know that some people take the information that we put out to heart, and it actually does them so good, and they're healthier because of it. Healthier and happier, too. <laughs> Jeff Olson, Mayo Clinic News Network reporter, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, guys. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have some interesting research about stress and demographics. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, it is really hard to avoid stress these days with so many competing demands for our time and attention. Now, my life's pretty easy, but I know you got a lot on your plate. Yeah, <laughs> so laid back and easy. <laughs> well, we may not be able to avoid stress, but it is important to understand how we react to stress so that we can manage it and avoid the health consequences like overeating, smoking, even depression. Yeah, one of the first steps toward good stress management is understanding how you react to stress, making changes if necessary. Research has shown that we manage stress differently, especially when it comes to gender. Uh, Hard to believe. (laughs) Here to discuss her research on stress and demographic differences is Mayo Clinic internal medicine specialist, Dr. Anjali Bagra. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you again. Likewise, it's fantastic to see both of you. Thank you for having me here. Dr. Bagra, thank you very much. And and it's a topic that everyone has to be interested in. And the introduction suggested that we manage stress differently. Individuals, how do you know that? 
So I know that just from anecdotal experience and being a woman and living with my husband. <laughs> uh, but there is actually research. It's all observational research, survey-based research. So much of this is observed differences versus a randomized controlled trial. So we have to keep that in mind when we look at these numbers uh, from survey data. But it has been shown that men and women report stress differently, they perceive stress differently, there are different reasons why they get stressed, and they do different kinds of things to manage their stress. Why is it important to understand or know why men and women report these things differently? Why is that something that you study? So I think the key essence of stress management, the number one thing is awareness. I think that's a huge part of stress management. Having an awareness that there is diversity in perception, reporting, and management of stress is the first step towards stress management. The next step is paying attention uh, to what causes our stressors. And the third step is having a plan. So if we start out with awareness and realize what some of these differences are, I think it really sets us up for more success with stress management. So the first thing you said is that uh, men and women perceive stress differently, and, and in what way? So first off, the reporting of stress, if we look at women versus men, women report a great deal of stress. Uh, more number of women report great deal of stress as compared to men. So it's somewhere around 28% women versus 20% men. Um, not just that, women, the kind of things that stress women out are reported to be different. So for example, more women cite finances and money to be big source of stress. Whereas men, on the other hand, based on these survey studies, report work-related stress to be a dominant source of stress as compared to the reasons cited by women. Yeah. And are you saying too that men and women will say, yes, I am stressed, yes, this stress is affecting me differently? Absolutely. That is a great point, Tracy. Thanks for bringing that up. Actually, women perceive a stronger impact of stress on their overall health as compared to men. Now, we all know this isn't a generalization, and we know people that are vice versa and don't fit into this model, but generally speaking, women tend to perceive a greater importance of stress management as compared to men when it pertains to health. So it's interesting you said that the number one stressor for women is finances, money. Mm -hmm. Number one stressor for men is job, mm -hmm. their job. So um, I presume then uh, we can so you, you can tell us that uh, men and women also handle stress differently. Tell us about that. Yeah, actually, that is a very interesting phenomenon that has been reported in this large survey from American Psychological Association. Women tend to have a more tend and befriend response to stress versus men who have a more fight or flight response to stress. And keeping that model in mind, more women actually enjoy activities such as reading and spending time with family, statistically speaking. And men actually like more physical activity more number of men as compared to women, so playing sports, working out. Uh, although the trend is changing, because we know life in 21st century is slightly different um, than even a decade ago. Um, I mean, if we just look at the past decade, more number of women are coming out and working. So there is perhaps a slow change in um, these demographics, but for now, we know that those are the main reasons for um, uh, stressing men and women out. Do you think that the stress level in women is higher than in men because women have so many uh, jobs? Uh, that they not only their career but also their family and take care of their husband is that is that a huge stressor? You you highlight a very good point there. Um, He's trying to earn some points at home. Yes, I I, I, I guess. So we all know we all have uh, many unfinished tasks every day, 
that drive our stresses. And it turns out that number for women is higher than men. Not just this, there are actually some not fully understood, but some plausible biological reasons behind these differences. Over the past decade, neuroscientists have done a bunch of studies on structure and functional differences in the brain uh, in men and women, and uh, reinforced those to be perhaps some foundational reasons why some of this happens. So for example, women tend to have a very high metabolic rate uh, within the default mode network in their brains. Um, they also have a different pattern of connectivity of neurons in their brains. Neurons are the brain cells. So they actually have a higher what's called functional density connection oh in their brain. And FDC. <laughs> FDC. Yeah. And that's, that's really mapped out on very um, sophisticated functional MRI tests. So I think it's becoming really fascinating how some of these differences, biological differences, pan out. You already highlighted some societal differences. There are also... Um, uh, plausible hormonal differences. We know women go through uh, all sorts of hormonal phases, premenstrual, menopausal, postmenopausal. So I think it's complex, and we can't pinpoint one area that contributes vastly, but it's multifactorial. I just think it's interesting that you're using uh, stress and how people react to stress as part of how you're going to ultimately end up treating patients because isn't that why you would be doing this research? This is exactly why we would be and uh, this uh, I notice this pretty much every time I go in for a stress management consult with a patient just having a discussion about this is hugely releasing because relationships are a big cause of stress these days believe it or not and when people appreciate that you know it's not a choice that the other person is making in a relationship but probably some biological reasons as well that cause people to behave a certain way, I think they have much more appreciation of people in relationships. Mm -hmm. So uh, are the patients that you see referred to you from other providers at, at Mayo because the, the, the person tells their physician or a provider that I'm really stressed, what do I do? And then they send you do you have, is there a stress management center here? I mean, the, where is it? <laughs> You're absolutely right. We do get patients referred to us uh, by our physician colleagues within the executive medicine practice. Um, and we see patients for a full uh, one and a half hours and discuss all of these reasons behind what causes stress. And of course, we walk them through the Mayo Clinic program on stress management during these consults. The Mayo Clinic program on stress management. Mm -hmm. There is such a thing. You walk them through the program, yep. teach them how to deal with stress. Absolutely. It's a stress management and resiliency training program which is very comprehensive. And we are able to do this within um, a 90 minutes visit, give them a flavor of what it looks like, um, help them understand the reasons why this happens, make them aware of uh, the brain heart network, if you will, and uh, how the stress is caused, and then it, how to effectively deal with it. I like it. We have her on the program nine or 10 times if we can do the whole program. <laughs> I would be happy <laughs> to come back. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Suj is back and forth every Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Anjali Bagre, internal medicine specialist, stress expert. Expert, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me here. And Have that's our day. program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.